Welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast Pressurized, a short, punchy version of our full-length shows. So if you want to get right to the scientific point, this is the place to be. If you really enjoy the topic and you think, actually, you know, I'd like to know more, just match the episode number and you'll be able to find the full-length episode in our feed. And now, to get right to the point. Well, in this particular episode, we're going to talk about geology and particularly geomorphology or the shape of the seafloor and mapping and bathymetry and topography. If you think about geomorphology and the shape of the seafloor, that shape is, is more to it than that. There's a story to be told in there. When you look at the, the maps of the, of the seafloor, you see it contains the depths, it contains features, it contains features within features and the steepness and the aspect, and more importantly, the history of how it ended up the shape that it is now. So you can just look at a map and you've almost got like a four-dimensional interpretation of what you're looking at, if you know what you're looking at rather than it just being, oh, it's deep over there and there's a couple of seamounts over here. But people have been wondering about the shape of the seafloor since the days of Aristotle. There are two ways of looking at seafloor. So there's a single map, like a three-dimensional map, which is what we use on the day. You know what the seafloor is like now. And then it's like I say, there's this four-dimensional thing, which is geological time. The first inkling of trying to understand the shape of the seafloor, from what I can figure out, was goes back as far as Abraham Ortelius in 1596. And he produced the first modern atlas of what's the golden age of Netherlandish cartography, which is my favourite Netherlandish age of all time. And on inspecting these latest maps, he basically made quite a simple but quite revolutionary observation. He said, doesn't it look like South America and Africa seem to fit together? And then nothing happened for a few hundred years. So prior to the last quarter of the 18th century, our understanding and the visualisation of the deep sea was largely derived from imagination because there were no technologies available to really give it dimension. You just knew some bits were deep. So we felt it was sea monsters and encouraged by malevolent map illuminators. So Ortelius, he actually got a job called the Illuminator of Maps. It's when you finish drawing a semi-useful map or an incredible good map, depending on when you are, and you get bored and you start doodling sea monsters all over it just to scare the bejesus out of drunken sailors. It's when you take the map and you make it really beautiful and you do the big fancy text but anyway so at that time once navigational routes had been established there was really no need to extend exploration any further as long as the sea was deeper than the hull of any given vessel so it seemed at that point the depth of the oceans were an exclusively academic pursuit and it was considered at the time an expensive folly as maps of the land became more developed there was a sudden switch to almost guessing what the seascape was based on the landscape this is when people started to actually go and have a look and, and measure for example the Challenger and Dolphin expeditions in the late 1800s discovered what is now known to be the Puerto Rico Trench on the north side of the island arc of the Lesser Antilles in the Caribbean. And uh, a few years later, as the maps of Antarctica started to circulate and were looked at with a more geological squint, the renowned Austrian geologist Edward Zeus hypothesised, based on the Caribbean formation, when he looked at the formation of the South Sandwich Islands, he said, ooh, that's the same thing. I bet you a tenor there's a massive big deep chasm on the far side of that. And he was right. And right enough, 15 years later, the German ship Meteor went out and found the South Sandwich Trench. Before we even get in underwater, they're trying to make inferences of what the seascape looks like based on, on, on land. It's all based on maps. So around this time, you've got two parallel stories are starting to develop. There's stories about the depth of the ocean, which led to the three-dimensional shape of the seafloor as to what it is now, or what we call bathymetry, and that was guys like John Murray, which you spoke about before, and the history of the oceans, and continental drift theory, and things that were, well, like 
that which were credited to Alfred Wegener. So the latter is somewhat surprising given how much we take plate tectonics and earthquakes and spreading centers and subduction for granted as science fact, but Alfred Wegener was arguing this relatively recently. Believe it or not, geologists were still arguing this in the late 1960s. And for a long time people thought with all these volcanoes going off, the Earth must be getting bigger. And it was called the expanding Earth theory. So the, the part of it was loads of really renowned geologists saying, no, 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 the Earth's getting bigger. They just couldn't figure out how. But they figured that if all these volcanoes keep introducing new lava up into the surface, then of course it's getting bigger. This led to the whole bunch of lively debates between what were called the drifters, who were supporters of the theory of continental drift, which basically means subduction gets rid of the new sea floor, if you like, and the fixists, who were opponents of it. And in response to the plate tectonic theory, even in the 60s, a guy called Andrew Lawson said, I may be gullible, but I am not gullible enough to swallow this poppycock. The Royal Society in 1965 said, yeah, tectonic theory, that's the business. So then two other things started happening. Those were naming undersea features and then ownership of undersea features. And this, this is where things start to become really interesting. So contrary to popular belief, you can't just name an underwater feature. You can't just name any old thing because you discovered it or you, you found it unnamed on a map. And there, there are really stringent procedures and undersea feature naming applications have to be filed with the International Hydrographic Organization in Monaco, which we talked about in the Prince Albert episode. So, and the application is not trivial. I've done these and it requires a quite a high degree of cartographic expertise and there are strict regulations as to what you call the feature because there are, there are a list of recognized features like basins and ridge and fracture zones, hills, seamounts and so on. And there are very strict regulations about what name you can give it. So you can't just name it after your girlfriend or your, your best friend's dog or anything like that. You, you know, it's, it's not a free-for-all. It's quite a regulated thing. So they prefer it to be named in association with the regional area, if possible. If there's nothing obvious geographically, you can name it after, for example, the ship that discovered it. So if you think about when they discovered the Mariana Trench, they probably thought, well, what's the nearest island, sir? Well, that would be the Mariana Islands, Captain. So then it was just like, all right, Mariana Trench. And when they discover Challenger Deep, they're like, well, what are we going to call it? I said, well, who found it? I said, well, we did, sir. Okay, Challenger Deep it is. You know, it's, in those days, it was probably a bit easier, but the same way as we're talking about the biology, you're giving it a name so at least you can talk about it. Someone says, where's the deepest place in the world? There's no point rattling off a Latin long or the big hole about slightly southeast to the, this island of such and such. You know, you just give it a name. So the point was it was easier to have a feature named for convenience and clarity. This was set up in all great best intentions, but I think it, but culturally it may have creeped away from the specific guidelines. So there's this amazing paper from 1987 in the journal Geology called A Proposal for Modesty. You know, when you see a title like that, you're like, right. Anyway, this is where a geology legend called Robert Fisher essentially just goes off on one about the culture of naming features without going through the official channels. So he was clearly a reviewer number three because it pretty much starts with in Enough is enough. I've just reviewed yet another paper and people are making up stupid names. <laughs> right? So there's a couple of quotes from this paper which I just love. First one is, unwittingly, they, presumably the authors, join too many parvenu scientists who offhandedly baptise a deep sea topographical feature that may have been well known and explored and they gin up a name, place it on an illustration, perhaps mention it in the text, get it passed by a harassed editor into the literature and consider it a name for prosperity. Another one he says, on the other tack, some editors, editorial boards or technically specialised reviewers partly know so little about historic courtesy, significant commemoration or even good taste that the seafloor has been littered and cluttered with personal in-group self-aggrandising, back-scratching or trite unimaginative names of or ugly acronyms. So it does actually go on to remind people how it should be done, which is largely the same protocol as it is today, but I'm a massive fan of ranting, so I love that paper. Then the ownership happened. So there's another whole angle to this, 
And so the naming had to change a little bit. So all countries with coasts currently have a 12-mile territorial sea and a 200-mile exclusive economic zone, or the EEZ, with special rights regarding the exploration and use of marine resources and so on and so on. But these are relatively new. This was mostly driven by squabbles regarding fishing rights, and the whole thing was pretty much driven by Peru and Chile. Peru and Chile wanted 200 miles. They wanted 200 miles of their own coast to just stop all this fishing nonsense. And that eventually became the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea. And that was only brought in in 1982. So then 39 years ago, which is geologically nothing, but in the grand scheme of things, not that long ago, suddenly 250 million kilometres of seafloor suddenly belonged to somebody. Right? It didn't before. Before it was the ocean was for everyone. And obviously, when it comes to fishing and stuff like that, it leads to arguments. So you end up with a load of undersea features that once belonged to no one and were named by anyone who found them, suddenly belong to the country. They end up in somebody's newly established backyard. And it's just whoever, whatever country will happen to be closest geographically. So in the case of trenches, we talk about trenches a lot, obviously, but given they form on the edge of tectonic plates, pretty much all of the Hadal trenches suddenly ended up in somebody's backyard. They're all now owned by someone else. There's no more the ocean's there forever everyone. So the man in our trench belonged to no one for the 107 years from its being discovered to the point where it then became the property of the United States overseas territories of the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands in Guam. Okay, so this is why so many under, underwater features don't necessarily match the current nationality of the area. So then the IHO had to rethink this and this whole undersea naming process. So this means you can't just name a feature in anyone else's waters now. If it's within someone else's EEC, you then have to seek approval from the, the nation, the sovereign nation, who now owns it. So it is very complicated. It's not just a case of, of running around the world naming stuff. It's a subject which does cause arguments and it does, as I say, periodically raise its head. And the point of me telling the story about maps and EEZs and undersea feature names and all the rest of it is there is a massive protocol like there is in taxonomy, but it's the same for undersea features and you can't just go out and do stuff. There are guidelines in place. So thinking about all things mapping in geology and geomorphology and undersea features and all that stuff, what we need is a geologist. We need someone to explain why they haven't mapped the oceans properly yet. Actually, that's valid, because we get loads of stick about that. Yeah, we're forever hearing about how little of the Earth we've mapped and now we know more about Mars and, and the Moon and stuff like that, so we're going to have to get a geologist on to basically justify why they haven't finished mapping the oceans yet. All right, so joining us today is our friend and colleague and practically a regular on the show now. It's geologist and explorer Heather Stewart from the BGS. Hello, Heather. Hi there, how are you doing? So for the benefit of the listeners, tell us a bit about your expertise. What do you do in the world of rock knocking? <laughs> so um, I basically study the shape of the seafloor and what it's made of. And also I do also look at what's underneath the, the seafloor as well. But basically I'm trying to figure out what has made the seafloor that way. Was it a process that occurred in the in the geological past, in the dim and distant past, or is it something that's been actively modified today, being actually moulded and shaped by ocean currents or changed by submarine landslides and uh, things like that? So, so you're a marine geologist then, because I know geologists have a different way of pigeonholing themselves. Sedimentary, metamorphic, yep. Glaciologists, yep. Metamorphic, yeah. We so love them. People actually classify themselves as, no, no, I'm a metamorphic geologist. Is that, is that a thing? Yes, very oh. much so. Yeah, we've got our, our different sort of disciplines as well. So then why don't geologists call themselves deep sea geologists? I think it's because we just don't care <laughs> about water depth. We don't see, uh, you know, imaginary lines at 200 metres or 600 metres depth. As geologists, we tend to look at processes and evolution of a 
of a landscape or in, in my case, a seascape. And also, I mean, go back through geological time and what you see on land now, you know, many of those rocks and things were, were once underwater. They were erupted or deposited under the sea and they end up after millions of years preserved on land. So as a geologist, we frequently study rocks on land that were formed deep underwater millions of years ago. Mm. So there's that. But I think also the seafloor isn't actually all that deep for them. Geologists also undertake studies looking at the structure of the Earth. For example, the, the Mohorovic discontinuity is the boundary between the Earths of rocky outer crust where we all live. Otherwise known as the Moho. <laughs> yep, Moho for short, we love it. So the boundary between the sort of rocky outer bit that we all live on and the more plastic mantle, and that's the Moho. And that's, you know, five to 10 kilometres underneath the ocean floor and 20 to 90 kilometres between our continents. The seafloor itself, to some geologists, isn't actually all that deep. I quite like that. It's just like, you know, we don't we don't call ourselves deep sea geologists because let's be honest, guys, it's not that deep. Yeah, <laughs> I know. T talking more about the shape of the seafloor and mapping and stuff like that, you know, we've talked about this before on the show about forever hearing this self-deprecating analogy about how little we've mapped the oceans and, you know, how we know more about the maps of Moon and Mars and all this kind of stuff. Does this mean that geologists have failed us all? <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's... I don't think it's just biologists that tend to make that moon and Mars analogy, to be fair. I think we need to step back and look what drives exploration, what compels us to, to map. If you think that by the mid-19th century, ships had been crossing the Earth's oceans for 200 years. And so the coastlines of the land masses were reasonably well surveyed by that time. But little was really known about the sea beyond a few tens of metres water depth, you know, like where you yeah. kind of could wade out into and, and hold your breath to dive down and, and have a little look around. But as time was passing, you know, there was increasing pressure to explore the oceans. Some of that was in the name of science, Challenger Expedition, for example. But you start to see more sort of commercial and military drivers, you know, yeah. resources, territory, communication, the desire to have telegraph cables between Europe and America. You could only do that with better maps of the shape and composition of the seafloor. So if you kind of fast forward 100 years to the sort of mid-1950s, wasn't until the collaboration between, you know, Marie Tharp and Bruce uh, Hazen that they started to put together maps of the topography of the oceans. And the first map that they published was in 1957. And that was the first time that the complexity of the ocean floor was revealed. And that was a map of the North Atlantic ocean floor. It raised more questions than answers, to be fair. What was happening with that huge mountain range? Was that where new crust was being created? At that point, we didn't have the accepted theory of plate tectonics. Plate tectonics wasn't accepted until 1965. So there was still quite a lot of debate and controversy about where's crust made, where's crust destroyed, you know, is everything fixed or is there such a thing as continental drift? That map in 1957 was the first time that, you know, we started to see a hint at some of these like global forces, but it was totally controversial. It was another 20 years before we had a map of the entire ocean floor. It is surprisingly recent, all of this stuff, isn't it? I mean, the, the tectonic theory in yeah. 1965 is bizarre, and you think about exclusive economic zones and stuff, that's only since 1983. Like a lot of these lines yeah. and the things that we take for granted now didn't actually happen until very recently. And, you know, up until 1983, pretty much the whole ocean was fair game for the benefit of all. Now it's now it's not. Now it's all sliced up into other people's backyards. Yeah, I think you made a good point about what we take for granted. You know, I mean, 1977, we've got that first ocean map, and it shows the main plate boundaries delineated by giant mountain chains at 
convergent and constructive margins and ocean trenches at subduction zones. I think we take that for granted now. I think even sort of non-scientists will have some sort of inkling in the back of their head that the seafloor isn't just flat. Along those lines, even a sort of an amateur gingerly squinting at Google Earth will see that most of the Earth has been mapped, right? Although we know that's not strictly true. The analogy of we've only mapped whatever it was, 18-20% of the oceans is not strictly correct because that's how much we've mapped in terms of actually gone out with an echo sounder and made a three-dimensional relatively high resolution or high resolution map. But what's the rest of it filled out with? If we know so little about the oceans and we don't have any maps of the oceans, how come is, what are the maps on Google Earth? How are they derived? Bathymetry, the measurement of the depth of the ocean, as you've said, there's a few different ways that we can, can make those measurements and derive those maps. Satellites have taught us a lot about you know the seafloor. So certain spacecraft carry altimeters that can infer seafloor topography from the way that Earth's gravity sculpts the water surface above. So you know if you've got a, a submerged mountain, a seamount, that'll create a bulge. And then you can do some quite complicated maths using the satellite data and you can create the map of what the seafloor is. So the satellite-derived maps, the best resolution is about a kilometre. So for every kilometre, you'd have one data point telling you what that water depth is. So if you think about if you go out for a walk from your home and you walk a kilometre, how many lumps and bumps might you walk over? I mean, if you live in Norfolk, yeah, not very many. But if you live in the Highlands, uh, the village that I'm from in Colin, you would change elevation over that kilometre like massively, going up over mountains and hills and stuff. So is that one data point for a kilometre representative it's an issue of scale. And that's when you come to direct measurements, most commonly done by ships. And you've used the term echo sounders. So most ships, even you know tankers and stuff, will have an echo sounder. So they, they will record you know single points along the ship's track that will tell us the water depth. And these are, are useful because then over multiple crossings, these ships will, will help fill in some of the gaps in the maps and will help revise what the satellite data is telling us. It'll be able to sort of fill in and give us better resolution, more detail over those areas. And then there's also something called a multi-beam echo sounder. And so instead of one point of sound coming out from underneath your, your ship to tell you water depth, you get like a fan of sound comes out. And if you have a fan of data, and it's kind of like mowing the lawn, you end up with a, a corridor of high resolution information. And you can just go out mowing the lawn with your multi-beam and filling in the gaps. But I mean, it's all down to scale. I suppose for some studies, having a kilometre resolution is, is going to be perfectly adequate. But if you want to start to make some proper decisions or lay new cables, you need to get more and more detail. And that's that's where things like multi-beam take. It's like these photographs you see of satellites that go up and like this, for example, they're going to go, going to go into a, an orbit around Pluto to photograph it. And you see the first photo and it's just this fuzzy golf ball in the distance, right? And that gives you a certain amount of information in that there is a planet there. And then as you know, over the months, you see it getting better and better and better until the point you end up in orbit and you're picking out craters. That's the thing, isn't it? At what point do you consider that to be right? Because that issue of distance is, is actually just one of, of resolution. I had a really cool analogy once, but I ruined it on a very low-key press release. It was on the back of some multi-beam work we had done, and I was made aware of this. I say in inverted commas, scientific paper. I won't say what which journal it was in, but it was claiming that <laughs> this author had found evidence of the canal system in the lost city of Atlantis, because in the North Atlantic off the Canaries, there's this weird grid, and then there's this enormous line that goes all the way back to Europe, which is obviously an underwater alien highway of some kind. And all it is, is the satellite data is very low resolution and a ship has gone out and they've done a grid shape, as you say, mowing the lawn back and forward. 
and then it's gone home. <laughs> but as it's yeah, gone it's home, it's just gone back to port. <laughs> yeah. What, what that is is it's just a high resolution stripe through a low resolution background. So when I was trying to explain this, I was talking about if you could uh, picture a a Moni, an impressionist artist who's made this lovely picture of of lilies on the pond, and you got Caravaggio to then paint over it in his style, like a two inch strip down the middle of it, without changing the composition of the photograph, just adding resolution, adding detail. It would look like there's a stripe in it. Yeah. It was just nonsense, but it, but it is weird when you look at Google Earth, you do see these big long structures and that's nothing to do with the seafloor. That's just a ship that's gone over it and filled yeah. in some detail. You know, we're at a point where we can say we've mapped 100% of the oceans. It's just that 80% of it's a really bad resolution, but it's not like there's going to be more big Mariana trenches to be found. We know that where all the deep bits are now. It's more to do with not understanding a lot of the smaller features or the features within features. Yeah, definitely. But there's also kind of just even having baseline data is the only way to identify change change and rates of change are crucial in so many disciplines there's also I, mean, I guess there's an element that we didn't know that we needed the data until you get the data and suddenly you've got a bunch of questions that we didn't even know that we needed to ask we've been on a, a survey together alan and we've discovered submarine landslides that nobody knew were there and they're right adjacent to a heavy populated margin and you suddenly realize right okay these are a geohazard. How old are they? How big are they? Has it impacted this shoreline before? What's the likelihood that it might do it again? The information that you can only get from detailed maps is the only way that you can answer some of these things. Yeah, I get, I get that in terms of, you know, there are particular areas of interest that, you, you know, it's very important that you understand it. But I'm just trying to sort of unpick this idea that everyone seems so unbelievably disappointed with, with marine scientists because they haven't mapped the oceans. So my question is, if I could snap my magic fingers and the entire ocean was suddenly mapped to the highest resolution possible, would that instantly change the way we think about the Earth based on what we already know? We don't have enough people to even look at that. I'm not, I'm not sure anything, there'll be, there'll be a great change in, in understanding of the planet the next day. It would still take a lot, years and years and years for people to unpick that. But it's, it's a weird thing to want to strive for because it doesn't necessarily give you all the answers because you still need to go out and do work. You still need to get underwater. And the analogy there is we, you know, we're always banging on about how we've got better maps of Mars. And then it's okay, so why have we just spent billions of dollars putting a rover up there? I thought the maps were all we needed. Because now we've got the maps and now we can ask and answer specific questions with targeted sampling. I mean, you're right. Yeah, the maps, is it's almost like the starting point. I love the fact that we've got this big aspirational goal to map the world's oceans. You know, I love that. I love, you know, lots of people are getting on board to contribute data, but we need to know what is there so that we know what questions to ask. But there's there's a lot of a lot of geologists, you know, we're still when we're trying to put concepts and trying to piece together the processes that have led to a certain seafloor feature or thinking about the, the multiple overprinting of different things, we'll get out pens and pencils and sort of sketch sketch it out. You know, it's just our brains are, are wired up. You know, we're very visual people. Geologists, I think, are very visual. So you, do you see maps as being this weird, abstract, artistic storytelling platform that if, once you make a new map or someone presents with a new map or even if it's seismic data, do you just see it as data or do you see it as the history of that area is suddenly unfolding as you subconsciously decipher all these bumps and cracks and, and depth grade and so on because I, I i see it like that now i never look at the globe the same since i started doing this is that I do, I do little lectures on stuff like this and talk about you know why is japan the shape it is people never even thought about that before why is japan it's a kind of weird yeah. banana shape and then you start looking at the tectonics and the triple junction it's like it's the only shape it could ever be and the whole thing tells a story and you can explain why countries are the shape they are and i don't think most people really would get that so i, I see it as a kind of almost artistic storytelling platform Definitely. Going back to your first point, you know, do you see it just as data or something visual and you're unpicking the, the evolution of the area and, and it becomes art? Yeah, all of that 
there's always active debate at my work about what colour ramp to use to colour up your data. My colleague Dayton Dove, he is the king of the colour ramp. He just manages to create like the nicest colour ramps to really accentuate his data, you know, and it really helps him tell the story about what it is that he's, he's showing. The way that we display the data is key, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of, well, it not only sort of brings in other scientists and helps you tell your research stories, better. But I mean, it's crucial for engaging, you know, with the public, you know, we have regular open days at my work and the bathymetry that we show, we, they always just capture the imagination of people. And we do cheat though, don't we? Because we just, we just published a paper <laughs> recently that had had a, a section in there about how underwater features are always presented in the abstract. So the colour ramp is data, but it's not real. So the, yeah. of course, like the Mariana Trench is not rainbow striped, but that helps you kind of visualise it. It's 50 shades of brown. 50 shades of brown or every <laughs> shade of the rainbow. But we always put quite a heavy vertical exaggeration on these things to bring it out. So when you watch things like Blue Planet and stuff, the trenches are always these big, huge, super steep things. And in reality, they're actually not very impressive at all. It's a figure we did when if you show a picture of Mount Everest, you're like, oh, that's Mount Everest. If you put the same vertical exaggeration on Mount Everest that we normally put on Mariana Trench, it looks absolutely ridiculous. It looks like something at Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And that's the weird one. So so even what people visualise in terms of undersea features is still not actually really that true. There's a big high probability that there's a lot of vertical exaggeration on that. I think you're you're wrong when you're sort of saying, you know, well, it's not that impressive. It bloody is. <laughs> you know, it, the seafloor is just an absolute myriad of different shapes and textures and processes that are all just left waiting for us to to unravel and to tell a, a story about. Actually, one of, the, one of the coolest features I remember is we did a paper a while back and it was, if you look at the trenches of New Zealand, at Kermadec and, and Tonga and so on, particularly Tonga, it has these big long ripples at the bottom of it, you know? And, and on the map, when you look at the map of the Pacific, it's just like, yeah, there's a trench down there. If you look at the trench, you go, yeah, there's big long ridges at the bottom of there. It's only when you start to put yourself in the bottom of the trench. Those ridges run for like hundreds and hundreds of miles and are about two and a half kilometres high. If they were on land some of those features, they would be wonders of the world. Yeah, absolutely. But because they're buried down at 10, 10 you know, close to 11,000 metres, somewhere in the South Pacific, they just look like bumps and ripples on the bigger map. And it's only, only when you get your, your sort of GIS and get your, your tools in there and start looking at the actual size and go, well, what if I was stood next to that, what would that look like? Suddenly you're like, oh, the Grand Canyon is nothing compared to this. I think that's really cool. Yep. That's what I like about stuff like that, when you start rummaging around in all these far-off places looking for interesting things. I was asked by some school children, you know, it's like, oh, do you like proving people wrong? The old maps, you know, do you like going, oh, well, actually, you know, this is what's there. And I was like, well, actually, you know, those earlier maps were snapshots in time based on the, the best available data at the time. And I'd like to think that we're adding to the story. We're adding yeah. to the narrative. We've got new new technology, you know, and there'll be better technology in two years time, 10 years time, 50 years time. That'll prove some of my research wrong. You know, when that's that's fine. It's all part of the narrative. It's part of the story. It's part of building on, on what we know and understand about the seafloor. All right, thanks very much, Heather. I'll see you next time. Always a pleasure, Alan. Thanks very much for having me, guys. And that was a pressurised version of one of our full-length episodes. If you enjoyed that and you would like to hear the full-length episode, just match the episode numbers in the feed. Thanks for listening. We'll deep see you next time, and I hope to see you all ready. Oh,